Hello and welcome to the Growth Lab at Harvard University's weekly podcast. Starting in November 2015, the Growth Lab was engaged in economic policy research with the government of Sri Lanka. Led by Growth Lab Director Professor Ricardo Hosman, the team focused on a single question. What is holding back investment in Sri Lanka, especially in new and non-traditional export-oriented sectors? And what can the government do about it? In this Growth Lab podcast, members of the Sri Lanka team share their learnings from the project and how they partnered with key counterparts in the government and civil society to support potential solutions and better understand the deeper institutional gaps that prevent proactive policy making. Thanks for sharing about your work in Sri Lanka, which was super interesting. And I wondered if you could just start us off by talking about some of the background context in terms of where Sri Lanka was when you all began the collaboration, in terms of what the economics were and maybe some of the politics too. Sure. Thank you for having us. We talked on the podcast some time ago uh, during the project, and now today's talk was about the project in retrospect because it has actually just finished last week. So now we're in a a mode of looking back at the whole story. So when the project started, Sri Lanka seemed to be in good shape economically. A long civil war had ended in 2009. There was a growth spurt, but there were some signals that that growth was slowing down as of the time that we entered the country in 2015. But there had been a lot of exciting things that had happened politically. There was a kind of surprise result to an election in 2015 where a new president was elected, and then a subsequent parliamentary vote, a vote for members of parliament later that year, which created a coalition government. And we were asked to come to Sri Lanka later in 2015 and study economic growth. And what we found was that While growth was strong and had been strong in the long term, there were some real vulnerabilities and there were signals that there was a a major slowdown happening in the economy. And politically, there was a very complex government structure in place with an astounding number of ministries that actually changed fairly often, but around 50 ministries at any point in time. So a very complex place to try to work and understand who's responsible for what in the government. So that's kind of where things were when we started. Awesome. Thank you. So related to that, how did you at the Center for International Development come into Sri Lanka and how did that partnership get started? Right. It was, as Tim said, like a really historic election and the new coalition government that came in was really interested in getting research, getting help from all corners of the world. And so there were a few requests that came in at the same time, actually. So the main one was through the Open Society Foundations, which funded our work in Sri Lanka for these three years. They met with the Prime Minister, and the Prime Minister met with Ricardo, and there was some discussion of his priorities for the government and for what he wanted to do during his mandate. At the same time, We also were asked to work with the Future Agency for Development and with the U.S. Millennium Challenge Corporation, which was beginning a project in Sri Lanka. And with any project that they start, they do a growth diagnostic. And one of the originators of the growth diagnostic was Professor Hausman, who was leading the project. And so as a result, they asked, are we in the country? Are we interested in collaborating? And we were. 
Great. So to kind of put your own research question back to you, what do you think is holding back investment in Sri Lanka and what can the government do about it? So the big takeaway that we had is Sri Lanka needs new sectors. Sri Lanka needs to grow its exports in new and non-traditional sectors. It needs to innovate. And so our question under that was, what is holding back investment in these new areas? And we kind of came up with two levels of answers. So the first level was there's no know-how for these new activities. The activities we would expect to find in Sri Lanka, things like electrical components, things like automotive manufacturing, are so different than what Sri Lanka does today that they would need a ton of new tacit information. And we thought that two ways that that information tends to come into countries is through FDI and through high-skilled immigration, through high-skilled diaspora engagement. And Tim, maybe you can talk about the second level of problems. Yeah, so Sri Lanka geographically is in South Asia. And compared to South Asia, GDP per capita in Sri Lanka is pretty high. But we quickly realized that we shouldn't be comparing Sri Lanka with the rest of South Asia. Its economy is really set up to be much more like a Southeast Asian economy. And as Dan was explaining, Sri Lanka just isn't on the same development path that other countries in Asia are on, which includes the diversification of the economy into new expert-oriented sectors that can pay higher wages. Sri Lanka's kind of gotten stuck in a phase of development where its main export is garments, but garments don't pay very well, so workers aren't interested in working in garments in Sri Lanka, but they don't have other export-oriented sectors to move into. So we focused our growth diagnostic tests around understanding why that's happening. And as with any growth diagnostic, we went through roughly a tree to test different potential constraints that cause that, and the ones that came up with the strongest signals were lack of access to industrial land of new investors, and weak transportation infrastructure and networks throughout the country. And as we spent more time in Sri Lanka and we, we did a growth diagnostic at the national level and then we turned to do a growth diagnostic from the perspective of a region, the north central province in Sri Lanka, we really saw that these are two sides of the same coin. So in the area of Sri Lanka where incomes are the highest and most development has happened, the western province around Colombo, land is extremely scarce. It's a concentrated place to begin with, but the state also owns most land. And the state owns several industrial zones that have been the most productive and places where past diversification has happened in Sri Lanka. But those industrial zones are full. And meanwhile, in other parts of the country, there is industrial land, but it's too disconnected from Colombo to be productive. So investors are unwilling to locate there. So there are these dual constraints where the most productive part of the country is kind of closed for investment right now. Investment that requires modern industrial land with water and wastewater and good transportation linkages to ports and airports and access to the high-skilled labor that Sri Lanka has to offer. And then there's other parts of the country with plenty of land that could be developed, but it's far from all those things. So this was a really interesting pattern that we found. And if you think about that, you can start to imagine a path forward for Sri Lanka, where if transportation linkages improved to the rest of the country, suddenly industrial land would be easier to develop in those parts, freeing up the prime industrial land around Colombo 
for all sorts of new kind of investment that have taken hold in other countries in the region, not South Asian region, but the Asian region in general. And there were a number of other constraints that are very interesting and important. One was trade policy. Sri Lanka is not well integrated into free trade agreements in the region, which seems to hurt its ability to connect to global value chains in the region. And then another side of trade policy, which is more self-imposed in Sri Lanka, which is the tariffs that they set on imports. And in order to produce things, especially new things, you often have to import a lot of the components. And Sri Lankan policy makes that very expensive and uncertain for potential investors. And we explored a whole bunch of other constraints, but these are some of the ones that really stood out as the most binding to the know-how problem. Great. Thank you. So after three years of doing this work in Sri Lanka, what do you all see as the immediate next steps for the Sri Lankan government to take to make progress on these challenges? Leaving aside the current political situation for now, they are actually doing a lot of great work on all of the areas we mentioned. So with FDI, one of the things that we did is the Building State Capability Program had a very ambitious project where they trained over 100 civil servants in different aspects of an FDI targeting mechanism. So that's picking the sectors that they're interested in, reaching out to investors, both with their board of investment and with the economic attaches, and also trying to proactively solve problems that are facing these investors in Sri Lanka. And similar with immigration as a source of know-how, they are currently overhauling their immigration law They've already made some changes that make it easier for investors, for students, and for diaspora, for overseas Sri Lankans to come back to the country and to contribute. On land, they're also developing new economic zones. These would be the first export processing zones since 2002 to open in the country. And that was kind of an outgrowth of the work that they did through PDIA, through the Building State Capabilities Program. And then, even on transport, we weren't involved with this at all, but they are finally building new expressways. And so, if everything keeps up with the normal schedule, then by the end of next year, they should have half of their central expressway built halfway to the center of the country. That'll make it a lot easier to access land from the Colombo port, for example, kind of unlocking a lot of land for export activities. Now that we've left aside the political situation, we can come back to the political situation since, as you talked about in your talk earlier, Sri Lanka has been going through a political constitutional crisis over the past few weeks. From what I understand, the president ousted the prime minister and then brought in the former president as the new prime minister, but then parliament has pushed back on that and it's being kind of contested right now. So I'm curious kind of how you see politics and governance and all of these questions coming into play in Sri Lanka, either on their ability to deliver on the work that you all did and on your recommendations, or just more generally on the economy going forward. Someone had asked us in the talk if there's anything we would do differently, knowing what would happen now. And we don't want to get too much into specifics because it's changing so fast by the time this podcast is out. Who knows what the government will look like? Most of our counterparts were with a single political party, and that's because that party was given the agenda, the portfolio of economic issues. So that definitely throws into question some of the work we did, say, in trade policy, if that will continue. But we also did a lot of work with civil servants who were 
a level below the heads of the ministries or the ministry secretaries and who will be around forever. They've seen different crises in governments. They've worked under both parties. They are less worried. And the fact that we've been able to work with them and learn from them and also support them as they make changes within their own ministries, we're a little more confident that that work can continue. Yeah, just to add, I think the issues that we identified tended to be rather complex problems that need uh, long-term efforts. It's not like you create a solution and then you just implement it. It's a series of steps, and we've worked with a lot of great people in Sri Lanka that we think are going to continue to work on those problems. In the very short term, the constitutional crisis creates a whole bunch of uncertainty that's going to negatively impact growth for sure. But on these longer-term things, there's been some improvement, and we hope that that improvement continues. So you talked about your work with the Building State Capability Program in Sri Lanka, and I thought that that aspect of your partnership and your work there was really interesting. So I wondered if you could talk a bit about how you arrived at that combined approach of doing both the growth diagnostics and then also working with government and implementers with the Building State Capability Program. So how did that kind of come about and what were some of the successes or challenges you encountered in doing that? Yeah, so we were incredibly lucky to be able to work with our sister lab, the Building State Capability Lab. CID has three labs and they're all active in different countries, sometimes at the same time, sometimes not. But I think this was one of the first projects, Albania being maybe the very first, where we had a really tight integration. And what that meant was we could have one part doing diagnostics, kind of nominating problems, or saying there's something here that could be looked into. And another side that asked why these problems were occurring and tried to empower Sri Lankans themselves to dig deeper, find their own solutions, and iterate on those solutions. And in some of these teams of civil servants, the growth lab kind of acted as a back office where the teams had a question that they didn't have the right data for or they had never tried to tackle before and we could give them some trainings or we could assemble toolkits for them. It was just a really rewarding way to work to kind of put the policy makers and the policy implementers in the driver's seat but still hopefully providing research for them that we think gives them some good ideas or that kind of helps them answer the questions that they're already asking. So part of why I was so interested in your talk is I'm currently taking a class with Professor Hausman and we literally just on Thursday got to growth diagnostics. And so I've just sort of seen this way of working for the first time. And one of the things that he talked about in kind of setting up the growth diagnostics approach is that previous approaches to economic growth, like the Washington consensus and all of the sort of reforms that came along with that, they often failed because they were one size fits all where you would just recommend like a standard set of like 10 or 12 recommendations that any country should implement if they wanted to improve their economic growth prospects. And Professor Hausman talked about the advantage of growth diagnostics being that it can be very tailored to the context and to what the specific constraints are there. And so kind of jumping off of that idea, I wondered if you could talk a bit about what you saw in Sri Lanka that was maybe unique based on other contexts that you'd worked in and 
Conversely, if there was anything from Sri Lanka, either in terms of the specific recommendations you made or approaches that you found were really effective that you actually think could be applied in other contexts as well? Sure. So the first big learning from Sri Lanka that's also happened in several other countries is we encountered uh, issues in Sri Lanka's balance of payments, which seem to be common among many developing countries, especially when they reach a some sort of position where their exports stall in a specific configuration and they're no longer diversifying, which becomes something that we're actively working on embedding more explicitly in the, the growth diagnostic framework. Mm -hmm. And beyond that, every country that we work in is really unique. And you, you learn new ways that the economy organizes itself and new ways that the government organizes itself. And you encounter constraints that you've never seen before. So the land constraint was one that wasn't on our radar because it's not one that we've exactly seen before. In Sri Lanka, it's, it's unique the way that the state involves itself in providing industrial land and the complexity of government institutions that own that land that prevent it from being freed up and fully utilized. When we did our subnational growth diagnostic in the north central province, I also found it interesting framing the growth problem there. Because before you do a growth diagnostic, you have to figure out what the growth problem is. Uh, maybe growth is too slow, or maybe it's uh, unsustainable, or maybe it's not inclusive enough. And when we looked at the north central province in Sri Lanka after having done the national growth diagnostic, we really saw things in a different light. And we saw the way that an economy that was agriculture focused in the past has been evolving and involving at a pace that wasn't really recognized from the capital, Colombo, so policy was still treating it as an agriculture province when it was so much more. And it's facing a very particular impact of climate change that's causing a lot of drought, recurring drought in that province. And because it's seen as an agriculture province, the solutions that people had in mind were all about agriculture. But when you saw this province as a complex economy with a lot of other things going on as well, the design space really opened up for many, many different ways for this region to adapt to this climate change problem. And these kind of things, you learn new things in every country because they're unique, and then uh, you start to see patterns in other countries as well. So some of these patterns are emerging in countries that we're just starting to think about now as well. So it was a very rewarding experience. Great. Thank you so much. Ah, thanks for speaking with us. Thank you. If you want to learn more about the Growth Lab's latest research and events, please visit growthlab.cid.harvard.edu.